In chapter 1, we learn about where Ruth came from. A man named Elimelech marries a woman named Naomi in the town of Bethlehem. They have two sons, and they all travel to Moab during a famine. Elimelech dies, and the two sons marry women from Moab. One marries Orpah, the other marries Ruth. Those two men die in Moab, and Naomi decides to return to Bethlehem. Orpah returns to her family, but Ruth travels with Naomi back to Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, Ruth gleans in the fields of a man named Boaz. He is a righteous man who sees her and gives her additional food and water, and asks her to only work in his fields so that she can be safe and well taken care of. Ruth goes home, tells Naomi of what happened, and Naomi agrees that she should stay in those fields because Boaz is actually a close relative of theirs. So Ruth gleaned in Boaz's crops until the end of the harvest. Naomi and Ruth have a discussion about Ruth getting married again. Naomi suggests that she marry Boaz and tells her to go to him that night and talk to him about it. Ruth does as Naomi says and approaches Boaz after he's done working. She asks him to redeem her family and to marry her, and Boaz responds that there is one other person who should do that. He says, if he does, that is a good thing. If he isn't willing, then I will surely redeem you. Chapter 4 begins with Boaz at the city gates, looking for the man that is to redeem Ruth's family. He finds him and asks him to sit down to talk. Boaz then finds ten elders of the city, asking them to be part of this conversation as witnesses. Boaz turns to the man and explains the situation. Naomi, who has returned from Moab, is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would let you know so you can buy it here in the presence of the elders. If you won't do it, tell me, because I will if you won't. The Redeemer says he will, and Boaz responds, One more thing. The day you buy the land, you also will acquire Ruth, the Moabite widow, in order to continue the name of her former husband, Malin. Boaz says here that this Redeemer will have to take Ruth as a wife, and their firstborn son will continue the name of Elimelech and Malin, not his own. This will result in the child receiving the land as an inheritance, rather than this Redeemer's own children. The man realizes this, and changes his mind. I cannot redeem it. I would not want to affect my own children's inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself. The man removes the sandal as a visual confirmation of the transaction. Boaz turns to the elders and declares, You are witnesses that I have bought the land from Naomi. I received Ruth as my wife to continue the name of her former husband, so that his name is not forgotten from his family of his homeland. The elders, along with others who had gathered, say, We are witnesses. They then bless Boaz, declaring, May you be renowned in Bethlehem and have many children. Boaz then marries Ruth, and the Lord blesses them with a son. The women of the town say to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, for he has not forgotten you and has not abandoned you. This son shall be a restorer of life and take care of you in old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, worth more than seven sons, has given birth to him. Naomi embraces her grandson and cares for him. The women gather and name him Obed. This son became the father of Jesse, who fathers David, who becomes the king of Israel. This is where the book of Ruth ends. By the grace of God, this male white widow becomes the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. Amen, right? That's, that's, yeah. Well, over Lent, we have been slowly reading through this story that we just 
got a beautiful summary of here in that video, and we're bringing it to a close. And, and I want to remind you, and, and it might not even need to be said, but I want to I remind you why we chose to go through this specific story during this season. This is the season of Lent, right? And the season of Lent is 40 days plus Sundays that lead us to Easter, which is the biggest day on the church calendar. It's the day where more people are going to attend church here and all around the world than in any other time of the year. And the reason is beyond just that it's tradition. It's beyond that we feel an obligation, but it's that the Easter message really is the greatest story that has ever been told. It's the story that Paul summarizes in one verse in Romans 5.8. He says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. When we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. Jesus died. And then three days later, he wasn't dead anymore. He rose from the grave. And in doing so, he promises that all of us, when we, we put our faith and trust in him, we get to be called friends of God. That through our relationship with Jesus, we become sons and daughters adopted into the family of the Father in heaven. And what that means is that we inherit the same inheritance as his son Jesus, which is eternal life with him. And it's it's not because we deserve it either, but it's because Jesus has paid the price on our behalf. And because he's paid the price, we get to walk into eternal life and live forever, forever with him. And that eternal life begins here and now today. Isn't that a great story? He is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, why don't we just leave it at that, say amen and go home. <laughs> Right? I mean, we could, we could end this very quickly so that we can all go shovel our driveways in April, right? right? No, let's wait. Maybe it'll be melted by the time we leave. We, we can't leave yet. And the reason why is, is because we can't just tell the story of Easter and leave because Easter is not found in the introduction of the story. It's found in the conclusion, and that's why we don't begin the season of Lent with Easter. We end the season of Lent with Easter. And, and I believe that it actually does us a disservice to jump to the conclusion without telling the rest of the story, because it's in the rest of the story that Easter becomes relevant and hopeful to our lives right now. And this is why so many of us can go to church on Easter each and every year, and we can hear it over and over again and not be changed by the story. It's because all we've heard is the conclusion, and yet the beginning and the middle are just as important as the end. It reminds me of, remember growing up, did anybody read those, those choose-your-own-adventure books when you were a kid, show of hands? If you don't remember what these, these were, um, at the end of every section of the book is the reader, you got to make a choice. Do you want the main character to go this direction or this direction? And, and you got to choose which way they would go, and then you'd choose a different section based on your choice, and it would take the story down a different path. It's kind of like an ancient version of video games, except unlike video games, you could cheat by looking at all of the alternate endings, picking the best one, and then working backwards. Did anybody who read those books ever do that? Show of hands. Okay, thank you. I did it too. And was, was your experience just like mine? Did it ruin the book every time you did it? 
It, it ruins the book, right? I've got a librarian, Hannah's nodding. It ruins the book, right? Even a regular book, even a movie. I was on vacation with our family this last week, and my brother-in-law and, and his wife were with us. My brother-in-law is a big movie guy. He's seen every movie, but it's always a problem because when he's sitting next to us, he tells us what's coming next, right? And, and you don't want that because it, it kind of ruins the story. And, and if we're not careful, it's not a perfect analogy, but if we're not careful, we can do a similar thing when we tell the story of Easter by not starting at the beginning. And so Lent is a beautiful season that reminds us of the whole story. It starts with Ash Wednesday, where we're reminded that we are dust and to dust we shall return. And, and if you join us for Ash Wednesday each and every year, we write down our sins. We do the same thing every year on a sheet of paper. And then we bring it forward and we place it in a basin under the shadow of the cross. And we burn our sins. And it symbolizes the death and the destruction that those things bring to our lives as we watch them burn on the altar. But then they're finished burning. Every year we wait until all they are are ashes. And it reminds us that our story isn't over yet, that this is just the beginning of a journey that's going to lead to forgiveness and grace and mercy and redemption where our sins are as far as the east is from the west. And the story of Ruth, the story that we're finishing today, is a story that tells that story of redemption and foreshadows the ultimate redemption story that we conclude on Easter. Now, early in the story, you might remember from the first week, and we saw it in the video, you've got three widows, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And they're kind of like reading a choose-your-own-adventure book. They, they've, they've come against these horrible tragedies, and each one has to pick which way they're going to go. And so remember Orpah, um, she chose to stay with her family, lost her husband, chose to stay at home, took the path of least resistance. Hopefully she went and lived happily ever after. It's the path that many of us would probably choose to take, myself included. But we don't know the story of Orpah because this story takes us on the adventure of Ruth. And Ruth goes on an adventure based on some specific choices that she made, that she chose when her husband died to stay with her husband's mother, her mother-in-law, Naomi. And she chose by doing that to not just to stay with her, but to follow her God and to move to her hometown. And by doing that, she was placed in a position of poverty as someone who is from a foreign land with nothing to her name. And you think, who would pick that option? Most of us wouldn't choose that option. And yet, if you cheat and you look at the end of the story, what you'll find is that it leads to redemption. It's the best ending by far. And so Ruth follows Naomi to Bethlehem, and they begin living a life of poverty. And Ruth goes, and she goes to pick grain among the poor. And my favorite part of my favorite verse in the first two chapters, I shared this two weeks ago, in Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, it says, As it turned out. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. This is the point in the story where you're choosing your own adventure and you're like, ooh, I think I picked the right one. 
I, I think I've got the right storyline here. Boaz, we learned last week from Pastor Jake. I just want to say this. Excellent. Matt, he's always a great preacher. It was an exceptional message last week. Go online and listen if you weren't in church. I, I'm still chewing on the wisdom he shared. Um, and we learned last week that he's a relative of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. And because of the culture and the law at that time, he has the potential to redeem Ruth and her mother-in-law by marrying Ruth. And so all that needs to happen is Ruth has to get him to propose. And so you get into chapters 2 and 3, and, and it begins with Boaz noticing Ruth, and, and then he's very kind to her, and he provides her with food and, and offers her to sit with him and the harvesters for dinner, and things are looking really good. And Naomi says, I, I think this guy's kind of got an eye for you. And so she sets up the scene, and she says, you got to dress up really nice and go down to the threshing floor. And it's like this scene in a romantic movie. And she goes dressed to the nine. She throws herself at his feet. And you think, this is the end of the story. It's going to only be three chapters long. This has got to be the climax. But take a look at what happens just after last week's reading. Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. Boaz asks Ruth, who's dressed up here, who are you? And she says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the cover, the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. And you look at this and you're like, here it is. This is it. It's all going to be over here. Things are looking great. I hear the nursery rhyme every time. I, I don't know if it's a nursery rhyme, but I hear the rhyme every single time I read this part of the story. Boaz and Ruth sitting in a tree. K-I-S-S-I-N-G. Do it with me. First comes... Love, then comes, then comes the baby in the baby carriage. And they're not kissing yet, right? But you're like, it's kind of coming, right? It's got to be here soon. All of the elements are there. We got to get to that point. But Boaz says this in verse 12. He says, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another man. There is another man who is more closely related than I am. And so stay here, Ruth, for the night. And in the morning, if that other man wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. And suddenly we thought the story was over and we hit a bump in the road. It's a snag. Everything was coming along nicely. And, and we know that Boaz is interested in Ruth. You can see that's clear here. He wants to redeem her. He's willing to marry her. And now all of a sudden there is someone else who has the legal right to marry her before he does. And this whole story is, is, is really close to being derailed if this guy who isn't even named in the story swoops in and takes Ruth for himself. We don't even know who he is, but don't you kind of hate him already? Like, like, he hasn't done anything kind for Ruth. He, he, hasn't, he hasn't, there's been no, like, romantic threshing floor scene. There's been none of this stuff. It's like an arranged marriage where the two people haven't even met. And it doesn't seem fair, but it's the law. And that's where we find ourselves. And I just want to pause there and point out that it's details like that that are the reason we need to tell the whole story and not just jump to the end. Because... Isn't that how life really goes? <laughs> I mean, if you think of your own story in life, we sing on the playground, Boaz and Ruth sitting in a tree because 
Because as kids, oftentimes we're ignorant to the truth of life and we think that things are supposed to go according to plan, that they go the way that nice and planned that we think that they're supposed to go. And yet a child singing on the playground, if they were going to sing a rhyme that was more reflective of the real situation that we might find ourselves in, it would probably go like this. Boaz and Ruth sitting in a tree, K-I-S-S-I-N-G, first comes love, then comes that period in college when we dated other people. Then comes getting married, and then it took us seven years to pay off the reception. Then came the baby, and the baby carriage. Have you seen how expensive baby carriages are? Like, it doesn't rhyme, but is that not true? That's the way life really works. And yet, at the end of our lives, when we're looking back, it's the parts where everything doesn't go according to plan, and yet it worked out anyway that shows us that God is really with us, isn't it? It's the moments when we went through trials, when our future was in jeopardy, where we experienced pain that we see God and our faith. And the reason why we're here not reading nursery rhymes, but reading God's word is because our faith tells us that if you believe in God, no matter what you decide at the end of every section in the Choose Your Own Adventure book, no matter what decision you decide, and I'm not saying every option is a good option, but every option has the hope and the promise that God will be there at the page that you turn to. That God will be with you no matter where you go, and he will use every choice you make to draw you closer to him. Even the circumstances that you think are the furthest thing from something that God could use to draw you closer to him. This is what God does for Ruth. And it's not the perfect nursery rhyme story. It's why we have to read the whole story. She's been married before, right? And now she's living with her mother-in-law of her former husband. I mean, can you, can you imagine dating during that time and inviting Boaz over for dinner with your former mother-in-law, right? I mean, they had to be a little bit awkward, but it all comes together in the end. And the seemingly unfortunate and disconnected circumstances begin to be woven together by the hand of a God whose plan is to bring redemption. And that's the gospel. That's the good news. And that's good news for anyone here in this room that's facing hard times right now. If you're facing a difficult season, if you're feeling guilty, and you're walking around life wondering if a choice that you've made in the past is ever going to lead back to hope. This is why this story is in our Bibles. Because hope is why. Hope in the midst of a time when in the nation of Israel they were feeling hopeless. And yet that is when the story of Ruth was given to them. So that we can find when we're in the midst of our own hopeless stories that God is not finished yet. That as Paul says later in Romans 8, he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good. Not that all things are good, but that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. And so how do we see that working so far in this story? For Ruth, we see that there was a famine in Bethlehem, not a good thing, right? There was a famine in Bethlehem, but if there wasn't a famine, Naomi and her husband Elimelech and their two sons never would have had to move to Moab. And if they never moved to Moab, then the sons would not have met and married Moabite women. And if they hadn't met married Moabite women, then Naomi would have been left alone when her husband and two sons died. 
And if the sons didn't die, then Ruth never would have been given the opportunity to say to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. I will be in, among your people, and I will make your God my God. And if Ruth never said that and moved with Naomi to Bethlehem, she never would have found herself in poverty, which is not a good thing. But if she never found herself in poverty, she never would have been picking grain among the poor. And if she was never picking grain among the poor, she never would have found herself stumbling into the field of Boaz. And if she never stumbled into the field of Boaz, she never would have caught his eye and he never would have been eventually willing to marry her. That's the story. And so we get to chapter 4 and we're at the 11th hour and there's some other dude that might come in and thwart the whole story. But looking back at the way God has already woven all of these pieces together, how do you think this story is going to turn out? Are you worried? Because you shouldn't be. You shouldn't be. And I'm not saying that that means that the moments leading to this moment are easy, or that in our own lives that we can always see the way that God is weaving our brokenness into the hopeful future that he has. We will not see that in full until we meet Jesus face to face. Paul says in another place, 1 Corinthians, that this is true. He says, for now, today, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I only know in part, but then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. What is unseen is the hand of God himself grafting every detail in our lives, the good and the bad, into his plan. And that's what he does for Ruth. And that's what we'll see here. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, this is this unnamed man who has the right to marry Ruth. He says, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling a piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if not, tell me so that I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am in line. I will redeem it, says the man. Uh-oh, what's going to happen here? Boaz then said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi, by the way... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with this property. At this, the guardian redeemer said that I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. And, and friends, there's a whole other sermon here that we don't have time to, to give today. But what you have here is you have a guy who's willing to make a financial investment. He's willing to make a risk, to take a risk when it involves an investment in land. But as soon as he finds out that that risk is also going to include an investment in people, he says, uh-uh. I'm willing to take the money. I'm willing to do the material thing. But now that it involves getting involved in the lives of other people, don't want to do it. It's just a challenging statement there that happens. He says, I, don't, I want the land. I don't want the people. And it's the opposite of what Boaz wants. And you see that in the way in which the author tells the rest of the story. Notice all of the names that are mentioned. Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today, 
You are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today, you are witnesses. All of these events, in the end, if you take a look, are going to lead to a little boy being born named Obed. And he would be the future father of Jesse. And Jesse will be the future father of David. You know King David, right? David and Goliath, remember that story? That's the story of David. And yet, what is remembered about David more than anything else is not David and Goliath. It isn't that he built up the great city of Jerusalem. It isn't that he unified the nation of Israel. But what he is remembered most for is that he would have an affair with a woman named Bathsheba, and that that relationship would produce a son named Solomon who would eventually lead in generations later to the coming of a man named Jesus. Great, 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 great grandma. You saw it there on the screen. And why is this shown to us throughout Scripture? It's to show us that if God can use people and choices and mistakes across generations to bring hope to the world, he can do the same thing in your life today as well. It is the concept we call redemption. And redemption, I'll just tell you, redemption is what carries me through life as a pastor. It is what carries me through life as a husband, as a father, as a Christian, in our years as, as foster parents, I've known the end of the story since I was 17 years old. That's when it clicked. Jesus wins. He is risen. He is risen indeed, right? But I also know that what you might need today and what I need today is not only to know that, but to know that God will take whatever it is I'm facing today and make it to that end of redemption no matter what. And I'll leave you with the story. A number of years ago, I was asked to, I was asked to lead a funeral here at this church for a young father and two boys and at that time, we only had our two boys, and, and they were about the same age, just a little bit younger, I think. And the circumstances of the death of this father were very unfortunate, left a lot of questions people were asking about life and, and all sorts of different things. And, and so I was up until like 2 o'clock in the morning the night before, just racking my brain and praying and asking God, what do I say to this family? And, and often at funerals, what came to mind is, is as I often... I often remind people of the tapestry. If you've been to a funeral that I've been a part of, you may have heard this before. A tapestry, you see the picture here, it's, it's an ornate piece of cloth that is, is, is made by weaving individual threads of fabric together, one on top of the other, one at a time, until it makes this beautiful piece of art. And there's a couple of things that we learn about tapestries. And the first one is this. You can't go back and undo a mistake in the thread, right? You can't go back and undo a mistake. You think about like a snag that you get in the middle of your shirt or your pants. What's the instinct when you find a snag? What do you want to do, anybody? You want to pull it out, right? And, and, and what does your mom tell you? 
Don't pull it out. The reason why is because if you start to pull it out, what it ends up doing is it ends up making it worse. It ends up unraveling not just that part of the thread, but it ends up taking the rest of the cloth with it. And so what we learn is that the best thing that we can do when we hit a snag is to get up and live another day. The invitation of the gospel is that God will continue to weave new thread into the tapestry of our heart and our life with the hope that God is going to use even the snags to redeem them into being woven into a fuller picture that we can only see in part today. And it's what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says, because you know that, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart in the snags. Therefore, outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so would you join me now as we pray those words into whatever circumstances God might be calling us to face today. Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you that you are with us always and your promise is to be with us until the very end of the age. Your promise is that in this world, We will face trouble, but that we can take heart, not because we will escape it, but because you have overcome the world. That our poverty, as difficult as the challenges that we face in life might be, is not the end of our story. That whatever mistakes that we've made are not things that we need to walk through this life carrying as if they define who we are and our hope in the future. You define who we are. And you have already secured our hope in the future because while we walk through this thing we call life, we do know the end of the story. We know that you win. We know that 2,000 years ago you died on a cross to take upon yourself the death that was required to pay for all of the brokenness and injustices that we face in this world. That while we might not fully understand the balance in which you have stepped into, we can understand that we pray to a God who knows and understands and walks alongside with us. That not only, Jesus, have you walked alongside with us facing the challenges that we face, but that you have stepped forward into death. A death that we deserve and a death that will not hold us with the same sting it would have because three days later you overcame it. You didn't stay dead. And because of that, neither will we. And so help us to put our faith and trust in you, a God who loves us so much that you sent your one and only Son, that he would die for us, that we might believe in him and believe in the hope that he promises us into that we are called children of God. It is in